Hi, so it's my privilege to carry on in 2 Thessalonians, quite exciting. Um, in the Bible, you will find it on page 1188. It's at the back of the Bible, so if you start Revelation and you work your way forward, you should come across it, 1188. And when you've got it there, you can just plonk it on your lap as usual for a few minutes. Okay, great. So welcome to uh, week two. Uh, Last week we were looking at how Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica. It's a very young church, remember, it's got a lot of difficulties. And he was thanking God for their perseverance and endurance. Those were his, the key words that we looked at. He was thanking God for that because despite the troubles that they were in, they kept going. And we looked at how, for some of us, we may not be in that situation of persecution, we're not being dragged out into the street and beaten, but we all suffer uh, trials and difficulties that we're constantly facing, Um, and sometimes it feels like our lives are made up of one of those after another. You'll uh, remember that uh, one of the reasons Paul writes this uh, letter is to refute these allegations that Jesus has come already. And this has thrown them into a real tiz because they're thinking, well, all this is happening. This is, this is awful. Uh, we were told that Jesus would take, come back for us, but he's come and gone and we're still in this. Was it worth it? What does it all mean? Lots of questions were ringing in their heads. So we're going to have a look at chapter 2. We're going to read it together now and then we'll crack on with this week. So chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by words of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned and who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Stand firm. But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast in the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Okay, so hopefully you're suitably like, ah, by the end of that. (laughs) Okay, so in verse 1 and 2, you see that he comes back to the teaching and tell that he's spoken lots on when he was with them. Okay, so clearly we're getting a picture that while Paul was with them, he spoke a lot about this, about Jesus' coming. In, the, in his first letter, in chapter 1, he also spoke on this as well. And this is the subject of Christ's return, or parousia, his coming. And Today, there are still people, I think, that maybe spend hours um, mapping out Jesus' return. Um, You might have met them. I certainly met them when I was a student. There was sort of a wave of it. But they speak constantly of destruction and dates. And Paul here um, has had a conversation with the Thessalonians about this. And it's important for us to say right at the beginning that we don't know what that conversation was. There is so much in this passage that we do not know, okay? Um, When theologians speak of this passage, they tell us that it's one of the most difficult passages to interpret. There are lots of unanswered questions and problems of interpretation, So we need to tread cautiously when we look at this passage and not try to fill in the gaps with whatever we've heard in fiction or whatever's been rumoured. There's a lot of uh, in us to try and fill those in, but I want you to hold back from that today. When speaking of the end, we also need to remember that... uh, A lot of the time, people are talking, when they're talking about this, they kind of build up this picture of terror that can be very fearful for people. But remember, when Jesus was speaking, it was for hope. It was to help them do exactly what Paul wants them to do, and us to do, to endure difficult times, to help them keep going. It should help us have joy and hope in whatever we're facing. Look at what he says in verse 1 and 2. He says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, so he's talking to them, and he says, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed. And that can be a temptation in this, to become unsettled or alarmed. But there are other things in life that we looked at last week 
For them, it was persecution. For us, it would be other things that can also unsettle or alarm us. And if we look at this word unsettled, it means to to shake or stir up. It's from to waver. And the picture that we see here is of a boat. If you imagine a boat floating on the water and the boat is attached to an anchor. And we get that picture of the boat being waved about. Okay. And the unsettling is when that anchor starts to sort of across the seabed. Do you get the kind of picture there? It's sort of being dragged a little bit. When life throws difficulties at us, or our culture offers us values or beliefs that we're not sure about, it's like we're being tossed about. We can come a bit like those disciples in the boat when Jesus was asleep. So our anchor here, and always is, what we know to be true. What we believe about our God In that uh, song, Cornerstone, our anchor holds within the veil. We're safe in him. Troubles and trials, physical circumstances and mental, can pull us about all over the place. It can drag our beliefs sometimes to new places. But we don't need to be frightened, Because when we look in the Bible, when we search for something, when we wrestle with difficult questions or issues, we know that the place there that we will eventually find is peace. The anchor should be our symbol of hope. So for these guys, new teaching about Jesus that they've received doesn't match what Paul had told them. Paul tells them this, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That's really good advice for us. If we're being taught anything, what we do here at at this church is we have a Bible in front of us. We can check it out for ourselves. But we also need to be making sure that we're reading it for ourselves, that we're asking those basic questions. What does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about human beings? What, does it, what should I do about it? Because if we're just being spoon-fed, then we might find we're being fed some lies. So it's just a word of caution there. James writes here, the brother of Jesus, He writes them saying, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. We're getting that same picture again. So let's spend some time uh, looking at what we're told about Jesus' coming and then we'll draw some things to take away. So... Paul here writes about something called the day of the Lord. And this generally describes something at the end of time. It's the end of history. It's a time... Hmm, I sort of went a bit wrong. Has that gone off? No, okay. Um, It's a time of salvation and judgment. It's a time when God will punish evil, and it's a time when he'll fulfill his promises. 
in the first letter, if you were here for First Thessalonians, you'll remember that he told them to wait, that Jesus would come. They give this picture of Jesus arriving in victoriousness with all his angels and they're gathered up with him. And he goes on to say in this letter, um, telling them when he does this, it will be judgment uh, for those who have not believed the truth. Now, it's a hard verse for us to look at here, verse 9. It talks about people who've rejected Jesus will be punished, and it says they'll be shut out from his presence. It's a frightening picture, isn't it? And we might have in our mind immediately a kind of very ungracious uh, preaching of the gospel, the kind of, you know, your end is nigh, turn or burn. But actually, when Jesus talks in his parables about going to get people, he talks about searching for them, finding the lost. He talks about inviting them to a party. He's gathering in. He's saying, come in, please come in to my presence. The consequence is if you refuse, you're shut out. But that's not the message that Jesus goes with. The punishment here is one that people get and they have chosen. But it's not the one we go with as a message. If all your life you have chosen to reject Jesus, it seems to me that is the punishment that you get. Not only in this life you can choose to reject Jesus or not, but also at the end of time, you'll be eventually shut out from his presence. C.S. Lewis writes this, on that day you awake and see that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Jesus said also to those that wanted God without him, He said there'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are shut out. Jesus' words were really clear that you needed to accept him to accept God. But in this passage, Paul seeks to reassure them it hasn't happened yet. He reminds them of his first teaching. He says, Just remember what I said would happen first, guys. And there's loads in this passage about what will happen first. But we've got three things we're going to look at this morning. The man of lawlessness, the holding back, and those who'll perish. So let's look first at the man of lawlessness. If you look in your Bibles at verse 4, we see that he will oppose Everything that's called God or is worshipped, he will seek to exalt himself over everything. He will proclaim himself of God. The way he'll work will not be in a good way. Ultimately, the power behind him is Satan. What he presents will be convincing signs of wonder. And the language here would have reminded us and the Jews reading this, of history. The Caesars at the time often demanded worship of themselves. 
We know as we look back through history, we will see people who have been proud and egocentric, historical figures in our past that have demanded worship of them rather than God. If we think biblically, we can think of Pharaoh who demanded worship of himself. We can think of the ultimate Nebuchadnezzar who built a statue 27 metres high and three metres wide of himself and demanded that people bow down and worshipped it. And when they didn't, we read that his face contorted with such rage that anyone would not worship him. And many through the ages have been identified with this man of lawlessness or son of destruction, the Antichrist, the beast. Leon Morris writes, This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult of the whole Pauline writings, and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rights to extravagant speculations. And we all perhaps know of people in the past that have pointed to different historical figures and said, oh, that is the man of lawlessness. But what we see here more is a picture of something that cycles, that we see again and again, the worship of self. And we certainly see that now. It says here that there is a a powerful secret force behind things. We see the power of worship of self. Just if we look on Instagram or Facebook page, worship ourselves, the worship of come, look at me, I am awesome. That is the bottom line, the worship of self. And that's what we do here. So perhaps it's better to not so much focus on who it might be or when he might come or giving dates or times or scaring the wits out of people, but to see the lies that say, I am God. Look at me. Worship me. Honor me. Praise me. Secondly, we look at the holding back. It says here, the one who holds it back. Here it is, the one who holds back. Again, lots of speculation. Who could be the one who holds it back? Well, people speculate it could be the church. We are salt and light in the world, mixed in to stop things degrading, to preserve that level of justice or morality within society. Some people would say it's preaching of the gospel. That's what stops it. That's what's holding it back. Of course, the Holy Spirit present in the world, holding back the evil. But one thing we do know is when this is removed, it will trigger the end. That's what we do know. However bad we think things are or have become, there is a holding back. And when that's removed, the end will come. And there's lots of speculation then again and fiction books written about what it means for the one to be removed. But actually, we don't know. Paul's not clear here. 
although I could have someone up here probably argue and jump up and down. We don't know. We do know that it will trigger the end, that Jesus will come in an instant. And my favorite bit of all is that he will destroy this with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. It's not a long, drawn-out fight. It doesn't go on for days. But the minute he appears, his very splendor, his breath, the power of Jesus against the most strongest power of evil you can imagine is destroyed in a second by the breath of his mouth. And that should be an encouragement. Third one, those who will perish. They are the deceived. Just like our fierce human beings, Adam and Eve, they are deceived by lies. It's a powerful lie. But before we feel too sorry, look what it says. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. In Romans, his letter to the Romans, Paul said that people know the truth deep down. They know it, but the lie seems more appealing. And how much do we know that? The lie can feel more appealing. God's response and ultimate punishment is to allow people to do what they want to do. And this can sit really uncomfortably with us. Verse 11, God sends a powerful delusion. Well, what does that mean? That's unsettling. But look at what it says. The opposite of believing truth is delighting in wickedness. Go back to Strong's again. Delighting in wickedness is to think well of and approve of what is happening. And how often in history have we seen people stand by and approve of something we now think is evil? It's easy, isn't it, in a culture to be caught up in what's right or wrong. The atheists say to us that uh, morals, right and wrong, are just a collective, uh, collective m- meeting together and in their imagination deciding what is right and wrong. Well, that can change, can't it? It's very shifting. If we're a boat, we're all over the place. The moment here, this culture thinks this is great. Oh, and over here, this culture thinks this is great. You can see how you can stand by think well or approve of something that God says is evil. Letting go of God's word and truth opens ourselves to a morality that is changeable. God sends the delusion. Well, that sounds harsh. Like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart to God, who refused point blank to do anything he continued to have a hard heart I think this is another example of God allowing us to continue to become harder and harder and harder 
removing the holding back, removing that thing that stops us going there. In the Psalms, God speaks of his people. He says, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. I let them do what they wanted to do. And here in Romans, Paul again reminds them, he gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts and sexual impurity. He let them do what they wanted to do. And God can shift his hand to allow us and darkness to do what we are begging him to let us do. But I want to put caution in. It is not that it doesn't cost him to do so. If we think of his son on the cross, he removed his hand. He allowed evil to nail him to a cross. And it was a massive cost to him. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He says, no, that's not happening. God is in control. And sometimes he allows things to happen, but never think it doesn't cost him. In 2 Peter, Peter's writing to a bunch of people who, again, are in immense trial and difficulty. They are in horrendous persecution. And he answers their question, why does God not step in right now and finish all this? And this is such a comfort to me when I look at mess. He says, instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We might be in situations that seem so long in changing. We may wonder what on earth this can be achieving. We've been tossed about and our anchor has been dragged about. But know that God suffers with you. He holds back much of what we never, ever see. God is for you. He's not against you. And the world in all his ugliness, he loved enough to die for. And he holds back and he waits that one might come to him. Like as Abraham talked with God and said, if there's just 50 people in the city, will you not do it? God holds back for the one. And if you haven't said yes to Jesus yet, perhaps in your heart of hearts you know you need to, he's holding back for you. He loves you. He doesn't want you to be held back. He doesn't want you outside of his love, shut out. He invites you to come to him to come into his kingdom, to come into his embrace because he loves you dearly. Let's pray together now. And I'm going to pray a really simple prayer, just saying, God, I'm sorry. You are God, not me. Jesus, I accept your death on the cross for my sin and I choose from this moment to follow you. Let's pray.
And if you want to, if you've not asked God into your heart, if you've been resisting him, if you've been waiting, he's waiting for you. And it is breaking his heart. So we pray, and you can pray this in your heart too. God, I am sorry. God, you are God, not me. Jesus, I accept you and your death on the cross for my sin. I choose from this moment to follow you and you alone. Jesus, please send me your Holy Spirit to guide me into all truth and teach me your ways. From this day forward, I am yours. Amen. So we might have prayed that just now or years ago. God is coming. He's faithful to his word. His promises are true. And he will defeat all our enemies. And it promises that he will bring us into his peace. Paul writes, finally. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by words or mouth or by letter. I know I keep saying it, but this is how we stand firm. We've got to cling on to the anchor. Revelation reminds us, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through to the gates, the gates into the city. Amen.